Well, it's good to be here again uh, in this building, and welcome again to those of you who are joining us online. Before we look at uh, something from the passage we read a few minutes ago, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you for guidance. We acknowledge, O Lord, that we need the light of your knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God by your Spirit to shine into our hearts. And it is our plea just now that for each one of us, be it speaker or listener, that we would all be enabled by your Spirit to have some entrance into your Word that we may understand what you are saying to us. So hear us, we pray, and bless your word to your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as uh, some of you may know, uh, the last few times I've stood here to uh, preach the word of God, uh, we were looking at some, some uh, thoughts from the first uh, chapters in uh, the first book of Samuel, and uh, this is where we're at uh, today. I want to start uh, with a question, and it may, uh, it may be a question that uh, is on our own minds, even on a day-to-day -day basis. As Christians, I think it ought to be. What is our understanding of the nature of God. In other words, what exactly is God like, and how does He present Himself to us from the pages of Scripture? Do we really appreciate the idea of uh, what is conveyed to us in terms of divine holiness? What exactly is that? Uh, what does the Bible tell us about the absolute moral purity uh, that belongs to God, that is His character? purity, holiness, and the real implications of what the Bible calls uh, sinning against God. What is our understanding of God, and what exactly is it, and what does it, does it entail, the ramifications of breaking the laws of God? We're living in a day where uh, we hear statistics uh, thrown at us with particular regard to the covid virus, which sadly in Dundee has been increasing over the past while, cases being expressed in a ratio so many per 100,000. That's one statistic. It gives us some idea of scale. When I was uh, in a former life working as an analytical chemist, uh, I used to do trace analysis on metals, uh, and these were usually expressed in parts per million. And now modern technology in science enables us to detect much, much less than that in parts per billion. And even the minutest traces of whatever can be found out, like for, for example in forensic science, the very least DNA can be used to incriminate uh, an offender. And the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ he sees everything about us, the minutest thing about us, particularly those things that we lose sight of ourselves. 
And that is why it's so important to see that even in this passage that has been read for us and that we look at for a few minutes, it seems to be a dark thread running through it from a human point of view. But right in the darkness, if you like, of this deep mine of human depravity, there are glimpses of the light of God shining through. And there is no doubt left in our minds that God is intolerant of the least thing that offends Him. The God revealed to us in Jesus Christ in Scripture is intolerant, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. He's intolerant of any want or conformity to the law of God or any transgression of that law. God is the least thing God is offended by, no matter how minuscule it might be in our eyes. And this is what we have to bear in mind, that the most minuscule of sin, if we can call sin that as an offense against God, atonement has to be made for it. And that atonement is foreshadowed in all that we have taught for us through the, the, the Scriptures of the Old Testament. Now, I just want to uh, say a brief word about uh, the background to all of this. We've, we've seen already about the family of Elkanah and Hannah, uh, the individuals in, in this drama that we've looked at already. Uh, it introduces us to, to Samuel and to his parents, uh, Hannah and Elkanah. Hannah, of course, is particularly brought to our attention in all that she had to go through. And we're also uh, uh, introduced to Eli, the high priest, who features in this narrative that we've read here as well. Uh, he mistook the behavior of Hannah, you may recall, uh, as she prayed in her heart and, and poured out her soul to God in the deep distress in which she was in her desire for a son to be born for her in the first chapter. And we find Eli misjudging Hannah, but now it's, things seem to be getting darker instead of getting brighter. If Eli was misguided, we're now introduced to his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, who were sons of Eli. They were in the priesthood themselves, and a picture a very dark picture is painted of them uh, in this portion of Scripture. Uh, you might be wondering, where are we going to with this? How is there any hope given to us through reading about that? And if we left it purely at the human experience that is brought before us, there would be none whatsoever. It's interesting that uh, right at the beginning of chapter 3, where uh, we read the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, we have a description there of the state of the nation, so to speak. It says, the word of the Lord was rare in these days. There was no frequent vision. Prophetic vision was very rare, very sparse, if at all. And it's very similar to the way we have an account of just before. It was at the time of the judges. Samuel was the last of the judges in Israel. And at the end of the book of Judges, we're reminded again 
uh, just going back, in those days there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. That's the, the kind of situation we're in. So it's not an inspiring passage, but it seeks to underline the reality of who God is. That is the background of all of this. The, the God who is holy, sovereign, but at the same time merciful and just in all that he does. And of course, it also underlines the intrinsic wickedness of fallen human nature and the depths we are all inclined to drop to unless God in his grace intervenes in our situation. And God is sovereign. God will do what is right, and God always does what is right. And the wonder of this uh, passage is that although darkness is pictured for us in the experience of humanity, there, is, there are still uh, glimpses, if not more than glimpses, of the grace of God coming through. He graciously offers uh, to intervene in our situation. And the wonderful thing about God's grace is that He makes us willing to receive him. He never forces himself on a sinful individual. A willingness has to be created in us to accept his ways and walk in them. And that willingness was foreign to some of the individuals that are brought before us. Uh, the psalmist reminds us of the power of God that is needed to bring us into that state of willingness to embrace what the gospel offers, offers us. In Psalm 110, for example, our people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Our people will offer themselves freely. So this passage has many lessons to teach us. And it's not, again, an easy passage to deal with. But we thank God that out of the darkness there is a light shining. The passage uh, teaches us about God and about ourselves. But it also shows us that we can't afford to trifle with, with the God of heaven, the God of Israel in our lives, whether in the church or in our day-by-day -day interaction with others. And sadly, the scenario that is brought before us here is right in the place where God ought to have been served in accordance with his own commands. So let's look at the characters. First of all, we're introduced to the sons of Eli. Now, it's very interesting that at verse 12, we introduce them purely as the sons of Eli. God doesn't mince his words in the description of these two men. They were serving as priests under their father, Eli. And he wants, God wants us to relate to, uh, the gravity of fallen human nature, even in such a scenario and this is grave. Just think of the many times that we read about those who are serving the Lord in his church, falling by the wayside and bringing the gospel into disrepute. So the gravity of the situation is brought before us without 
any shadow of a doubt, I think. You know, it's not easy reading, and it's not meant to be. None of us can say that the Bible, oh, this is far too unpleasant for me to be reading about this. But God doesn't, as I said, mince his words. He wants us to understand clearly the depths to which we can indeed descend. And these two men, the sons of the high priest of Israel, Eli, are behaving in a despicable way. That is one way of describing it, but it's hard to find uh, words that sufficiently express the offensiveness of what Hophni and Phineas were doing. They're behaving in a very grave way, very offensive way, abhorrent way before God and before people in the service of the temple, supposedly. Their names, you know, it's interesting, as I said, we're introduced to them in verse 12 as the sons of Eli. But as you read down until you come down to about verse 34, their names don't seem to appear in the text at all. It's almost as if they are so offensive in what they are doing that they're nameless. They're without a name, and certainly the reputation is serious. They're contradicting and contravening the specific instructions which God had set out for the priestly role. Now, I'm not going into the detail of what we have from verse 12 downwards, but I'm just going to say that, in summary, they are totally in contravention and contradiction. They're turning their backs to what God has asked them to do. And what their actions speak of is very much focused on themselves. Instead of having the attitude of, we are serving Yahweh, the God, the covenant God of Israel, what they're doing is they're in it for themselves. And that is a very serious situation to be in, especially for those who are leaders in the church, leaders in the religious affairs of God's community. And this is what they're guilty of. Their actions speak of self-centeredness, of greed with the meat that they were demanding from the, and rebellion and uh, just zero consideration for God or of others. It's interesting in verse 15, here is one detail that I just want to mention. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest. So the priest, Hophni and Orphanius, came first, whereas the instructions given to us in the book of Leviticus make it quite clearly that the, roast, the fat was to be burnt first of all as an offering to the Lord before the fat was burned. This is what they did. So they put themselves before God. They're guilty of heinous sinfulness because of their actions in the role they had been set apart to do. And it's interesting what they're described as. The description, this one word that jumps out from the pages in verse 12. The sons of Eli were worthless men. Now, it depends which English translation of the Scriptures you use to get uh, the real meaning, the depth of uh, heinousness. Uh, 
seriousness, gravity, and offensiveness that this is trying to convey. In, in some translations, uh, this is actually uh, quoted as, if you have an authorized version or use a New King James Version, I think it is described as sons of Belial. And in Scripture, Belial was used pers- to personify wickedness and worthlessness. And the only time the word is used to identify a person is second, in the New Testament, I think, is 2 Corinthians uh, 6 and 15, where Paul uses uh, the name uh, sons of Belial uh, in the context of what he was talking about. Let me turn to 2 Corinthians and chapter 6, verse 15. Uh, this is what it says here. Second uh, Corinthians six and fifteen. Here we are. What accord has Christ with Belial? What he's, he's talking here about what uh, uh, the, the idea of being unequally yoked in terms of our relationship, the Christian's relationship with the world. And uh, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. The gravity of the situation is left uh, before us without any shadow of doubt. Uh, There's no indication directly, I suppose, from Scripture that Belial is the proper name of a specific demon, although it seems to imply that Uh, these sons of Eli who did not know the Lord, uh, they're worthless. It's very interesting to note that being called that, it is basically putting them right at the bottom, if you like, the darkest color in the moral spectrum. And that speaks of fallen humanity in general. But here we have their actions speaking what their heart is like. There's blatant disregard for God's directions. Now, it's very interesting when we contrast, for example, the characters brought before us of Hophni and Phinehas to the character of Hannah. Do you remember how Eli misjudged the behavior of Hannah when she was pouring her heart out with her lips moving, and yet not a word coming out of her mouth? And Eli Uh, thought that she was drunk, and he accused her of being worthless. In other words, corrupt, immoral in her behavior. And what a misjudgment that was on the part of Eli. And maybe that tells us something about what Eli was like uh, in in a spiritual way. So there's the blatant disregard for God's directions regarding the duties of these men in the sacrificial offerings of the temple as it was then. But there's also the the immoral sexual practice that these men were guilty of with the serving women who who were there. And associated with that, of course, there is the adultery because we read later that one of these sons was, was married. And this was just a license to do the very things that, that uh, you wouldn't expect to happen in that sort of scenario. And it's interesting, uh, in, in verse 17, 
we read the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. I think that makes it very clear to us how offensive all of this is. And you might ask, and I might ask, why on earth did God not strike them down there and then? Well, that is a mystery, and that is something that tells us about what God, how long-suffering God can be in situations where there is rebellion against Him. And that applies to us all, because we are all by nature sinful, and God in His mercy and long-suffering is slow to anger. You might ask then, because this had happened to others. Remember, if you know your Bibles, uh, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they were, they were guilty of offering uh, strange fire. In other words, they were offering wrong sacrifices to the Lord, and the Lord struck them down. And also, you may remember the account when the, the Ark of the Covenant was being moved in the second book of Samuel, chapter 6, uh, a man called Uzzah. He thought he was helping things by stretching out to steady the ark when the oxen stumbled. But no one was to touch this sacred object. And that is the nature of our God. God, in his sovereignty, he wanted to use others as an example of his holiness and his intolerance of doing what was commanded not to do, and very, very clearly, Lord, who shall stand if you should mark iniquity? But yet there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Psalm 130. The holiness of Israel's God and our God is brought into perspective all the time. And as the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We, we, we're inclined to lose sight of the God with whom we have to do. Yes, we, we make our approach to God now through one who has taken our place. But the nature of God hasn't changed. God is still opposed to sin. And he will deal with sin unless our sins are taken by somebody else, dealt with, as indeed they have been through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is a consuming fire, and our access to him is based only on himself in our nature and through the merits of him who took upon himself our humanity in purity. So, is there not a principle here regarding how we approach God in our worship? How careful we have to be and the supreme duty of care we have, uh, those of us who are leaders, to leave an example before the people whom we are serving. I want to say a few words about Eli. It's reasonable to conclude, I think, that the problem with Hophni and Phineas here stemmed from a lack of parental control on Eli's part. Uh, I'm not going into 
parental responsibility here. That is another topic. But some of that does come through here, or so it would appear. Perhaps from his earlier days as a father, he didn't look after his children with the discipline and instruction that had been given to himself. Now, Eli knew, he he knew what was going on. And it's interesting when we read further down, uh, in verse 22, Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing in all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He was aware of what was going on. But even before that, he was also aware of the God whom he was serving. But to what extent was he convicted? I think it's fair to say that uh, Eli was more concerned for family reputation. Look at what he says in verse 24. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Sometimes we're more concerned for the honor of our own families than we are for the God whom we seek to serve as families. And I think it's reasonable to assume that he was more concerned for family reputation than for the honor of the covenant God who had instructed the priests regarding worship. So, Eli, we might say, lacked sufficient conviction in addressing this dire situation as a father, but more importantly, as the high priest with oversight responsibilities in God's house as priests. Eli seemed to take the soft option. It's very easy for those of us who are parents and fathers and mothers to take the soft option sometimes in disciplining our children. Uh, One commentator puts it this way, it was more of a a tut-tut from Eli than firm words and action from him. You might say it was blood thicker than water. Again, family before God. That is a balance that we have to draw up uh, uh, when it comes to these sorts of issues in our own lives. Eli was guilty of compromise. And the Word of God is something that God will not compromise. And He instructs us neither to compromise it because if we do so, it will be to our own cost. And here the problem was the sin uh, that they were guilty of, sinning against a holy God. And it's interesting in verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate uh, for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, that is very, very uh, pointed, that. We don't question what God wills in the secrecy of his own counsel. We must accept that what God decides here. Why didn't God, we might ask, choose to be a bit merciful? Well, he was merciful, again, because he didn't strike them down. And they had plenty of opportunity to be corrected. But maybe the conviction of Eli, who was supposedly instructing them as to what they should do, wasn't strong enough. They would not listen. And the sentence of death 
by God had been given, but not yet carried out. That was to happen a little later on. And the wonderful thing here is in the darkness of Hophni and Phineas's practices and in the shady world of Eli's moral life, a prophet is sent to Eli. And notice the prophet is sent to Eli, which points, I think, that Eli was carrying the can here. The buck stops with you, Eli. This is your problem, and you're going to be dealt with because of all uh, the problem that you have caused. The Lord has said, verse 27, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father? There, uh, the prophet there, we don't know who he is. He's referring to Aaron. Your father, a forefather of Eli's, where the priesthood began when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh, and so on. As a result, this unknown prophet was sent to Eli to tell him what was to become of him and his family. And this was fulfilled, as I said, a little later in the history of the priesthood, how uh, Hophni and Phinehas were killed and Eli fell to his death. I'm not going into that detail, but you'll find it in chapter 4 from verse 12 onwards. So it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, as the writer to the Hebrews says. You know, where do we go from here, you might ask? Going back to verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? This was the role of the priest at that time. And I think there's a glimpse there. And the answer to the question is, given to us, I think, from the first letter of John at the beginning of the second chapter where uh, the writer says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, not offend God, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He and he alone is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Jesus who was foreshadowed in all these sacrifices and rituals which uh, Hophni and Phinehas were neglecting and so dreadfully abusing, uh, this Jesus foreshadowed was rejected out of hand. So is, there any, uh, is it getting any brighter for us in this passage of Scripture? Well, I think it is. Those of you who subscribe to uh, the monthly record, uh, there's an article by uh, Katrina Murray, I think that's her name, and it's titled Post Tenebras Lux. Now, not being a Latin scholar, I know there are some Latin scholars present. Do you know what that means? Well, it means after darkness, light. And that is what we have coming through here. After darkness, light. Beautiful passage which uh, we, we find uh, brought to us in, in, in Scripture, in the New Testament as well, uh, where uh, Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, describes uh, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of 
Jesus Christ shone shining into the darkness. And a little of that light is brought before us when we read about Samuel and Elkanah and Hannah particularly. As we saw earlier, there were some problems in the parental home there. Yes, they weren't perfect, but there was far more conviction and dedication from that family than there seemed to be from the family of Eli. Yes, they were all flawed saints. And the best of saints is a flawed saint. You might think today that there's nothing wrong with me today. I'm, I'm okay whether you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. But the truth is that whoever we are, we are flawed. Even those of us who have seen the light in terms of the beauty of the Lord, we're still prone to sin and failure. But here we come to Samuel, particularly Samuel. He was a little boy. And it's interesting, I deliberately wanted to read verse 12, verses 11, sorry, verse 9. Sorry, I've got the wrong chapter here. I wanted to read the, the, the verse that preceded the section in verse uh, 21. It is, the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord, ironically, under Eli. It's an interesting question to ask if Eli was such a faulty parent in terms of his own family, how was it that God saw it fit to leave him, to leave Samuel under his instruction? Well, the Lord was there. That could, can be the only uh, answer to that. Samuel was serving in God's house. You might say in the church. He was serving the Lord with his whole life. He had been given by his mother Hannah to the Lord. And the text from uh, 2.11 to 3.1 contrasts Samuel with Eli and his sons. One commentator, uh, a commentator called Dale Ralph Davis, whom some of you may know, uh, it's interesting how right through this passage there's an intertwining of Samuel uh, and the sons, the son, one son, the son of uh, Elkanah and Hannah and uh, uh, the contrast between him and the sons of Belial as the translation. These worthless men brought before us here. Samuel serves in verse, uh, verse 11 of chapter 2. Then there are these liturgical sins, verses 12 to 17. Then again, verses 18 to 21. There's a, a a group of verses there that reminds us again of the light within the darkness. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. And when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Just in there, in that uh, few verses, the beautiful reminder of the faithfulness 
with which Samuel and his parents were serving the Lord. And the Lord, we read there, blessed, uh, uh, blessed uh, the family. When, when Hannah went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, uh, Eli would bless Elkanah's wife and say, may the Lord give you children. And at the end of that verse, uh, uh, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their house. And verse 21, it is the young, uh, the Lord visited uh, Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons. The Lord honors those who honor him and the Lord will not honor those who pay dishonor to him in whatever context of life we find ourselves in. The light of faithful service is contrasted with that of the darkness of rebelliousness and the fruitful service for God that Eli, to a large extent, was guilty of. We read about him that he was fat and uh, he was obviously partaking of the, the, the fruit, so to speak, the, the stolen meat that his sons were bringing home. In verse 34, you know, even within the prophecy of judgment against Eli and his family, there appears a bright light shining, a bright light of promise. Verse 34 reads, This shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, shall be the sign to you. This that shall come shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself, verse 35, precious words. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. The prophecy of the tragic death of Eli and his sons was fulfilled. But a promise was made in this prophecy as well, no doubt in the first instance referring to the very boy that is brought before us here, Samuel. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. But it goes beyond that. There was to be a historical change in the line of the priesthood as a judgment on the house of Eli. But going even beyond that, there was another priest that was to come. In verse 35 again, it's worth reading these words. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, a perfectly obedient priest who will act. All human priests, as we read in the book of Hebrews, are fallible. But here we have a prophecy with regard to a faithful high priest. And it's interesting what it says there at the end of verse 34. Could have been referring to some historical priest. I believe there is maybe a distant reference to a man called Zadok, who was the high priest under, uh, under King Solomon, succeeding Abiathar, who had been from the house of Eli. And there, there was the break in the lineage there. But this goes beyond that. This word that comes at the end, I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and before my anointed forever. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I take that word as not meaning in the realms of time, but beyond. This uh, is surely referring to the eternal priesthood 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful priest of God, a perfectly obedient priest. A priest whose house was not to be of bricks and mortar, but of people like us, sinful people like you and me, those who by his own blood he was to ransom, to heal, to restore, and to forgive. People from all corners of the planet, no matter what race or creed or color of skin, a house of which he himself is the chief cornerstone and over which the gates of hell shall never prevail. A priest who has satisfied every requirement called for by God in order to save sinners such as you and me. A priest so beautifully described for us uh, by the writer to the Hebrews. There, there are beautiful descriptions in various parts uh, of the book of Hebrews. But I'd like just to read a couple of verses uh, at, at the uh, end of chapter 4, verses which may be familiar to us. Since then we have a great high priest, referring to Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our con confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, and we're called on the basis of who he is and what he has done to come with boldness to his throne of grace, a priest who is beyond our imagination, and a priest foreshadowed by the priesthood of the Old Testament, these priests who were some faithfully serving the Lord, but they, they still had their own fallibilities to deal with as well. So just to conclude, what does this tell us about God and ourselves? Well, as I started off with, I think this is focusing, spotlighting on the intolerance of God where sin is concerned. We must never lose sight that God is holy the Apostle Peter reminds his readers to live lives that are Christ-like. That is the way I like to define holiness. We are sinful. We must keep on remembering that God is offended by our sin, but also that he has provided a way out for us. God in his covenant love provides full salvation in his Son, Jesus Christ, for all who come to him in repentance and faith, even, even though our sins be as red as scarlet. Beautiful words from Paul again, writing to the Corinthians, describing Jesus. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. The sins that uh, Hophni and Phineas, the kind of sins, the basic, dark, deep, imbued sins that you and I are prone to. The seed of that sin is in us. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Hophni and Phineas, they are a warning. There's tragedy there. Eli neglected his responsibilities and grew into effect ineffectiveness. But Samuel, Samuel served the Lord from a very young age. 
Remember, says the Scriptures, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And speaking uh, at a personal level, I was brought up in a Christian community, and the more I look back, the more I see the greatness of that privilege. Some of you will not have had a church or a Christian background, but let me assure you that there is none like Jesus, our great high priest. And this applies to those of us who are afar off, to, be, to come near and to embrace Jesus as our Savior. There is none like him who offered himself as a pleasing aroma to God for us, that we would be delivered from God's just punishment, delivered from hell and have everlasting life. Just to finish, words from Psalm 2. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. That word, uh, again, we're reminded is a, a, a la, an active word, a living word, sharper than any two-edged sword. Be pleased, Lord, to apply what is yours to us and to take away what is of man. We pray that you would have the glory and that all would be done in your name and for your sake. Amen.